This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. After two years of chart-topping hits that would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Song, I would imagine those who followed the Oscars in the 1960s were anxious to hear what songs Hollywood would offer in 1963. Would anyone create a melody that was as unforgettable as Moon River? Or a lyric that was as emotional as Days of Wine and Roses? I'm sad to report that the song offerings in 1963 were not up to the standard, though the two men who created those iconic songs, Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer, presented a song that would earn them their third domination in a row. A few other big hitters were on the list as well, and we had a couple of prominent singers doing their best to make the songs feel award-worthy. All but one of the nominated songs in 1963 was created by at least one Oscar winner on the writing team. That says a lot about the type of boys club that existed in Hollywood at the time. Manos Hadridakis' composition of Never on Sunday in 1960 was the last time that a nominated song was not created by at least one person who had been a previous Oscar nominee. In the two years after that, Henry Mancini was the only one who was a first-time nominee. So the stranglehold on Oscar nominations for original song was pretty much held up by a group of a dozen or so men that pretty much held on in 1963. But it won't be the case for much longer. So let's start with the one song in which all the songwriters were first-time nominees in 1963. That is the song More from the quasi-documentary from Italy called Mondo Cane that was a big hit in Italy in 1962 but didn't find its way to the United States until spring 1963. Mondo Cane translates loosely from the Italian as Dog World. I say it's a quasi-documentary because many of the scenes are obviously scripted or staged as exaggerations of reality. The film was better described as a shockumentary, designed to present scenes of practices in various cultures that would be appalling or shocking to international audiences showing violence to animals and some cruelty toward humans in some remote cultures seemed to be the point of the movie. Not too long into the movie, for example, we see men kill pigs for a feast in New Guinea, and later, dogs are killed for food in Taiwan. Some of the scenes feature American subjects, like overweight women going through a weight loss program, or New Yorkers eating exotic foods shipped from Asia. Even 40 years later, some of the movie is not easy to watch, and for me, the worst part might have been the three or four minutes featuring snakes. But back in 1962, this travelogue was a hit all over the world, selling as many tickets as some of Hollywood's bigger films, and created a series of Mondo movies with the same subject matter. Thankfully, none of the sequels featured an Oscar-nominated song, so I don't have to watch them. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times loved it, calling Mondo Kane weird, paradoxical, and extraordinarily candid. His West Coast rival, 
Philip Schuer of the Los Angeles Times said it was disgusting, sickening, and largely fraudulent. As I watched this film, including the scenes with snakes, animal killings, and drunk Germans, I find myself agreeing with Schuer and Crowther. After a while, I decided to turn my full attention to preparing for the nominated song's appearance. After an hour, I started wondering if this would be a situation similar to what happened with the song Love Letters in 1945. That song never appeared in the movie Love Letters, having been created off the melody written for the film by Victor Young and made into a song after the film was released. Could the nominated song from Mondo Kane, called More, have snuck by the Academy the same way Love Letters did? It didn't seem possible under the current Academy rules. Each nominated song was shown to members of the music branch as they appeared in the films. If More didn't appear in the movie, it should have been disqualified. The version I saw did not have the song in it, and I watched all 108 minutes of it. That alone should have disqualified it from Oscar consideration. But what I think happened is similar to how Dmitry Tiomkin managed to get the theme song for The High and the Mighty eligible for an Oscar. Just before the movie came to the United States, British songwriter Norman Newell wrote English lyrics to the melody that appears multiple times in the film as composed by Riz Ortolani and Nino Olivero. That song, called More, was offered to anyone who wanted to sing it, and it was Steve Lawrence who took it first. His version was largely ignored by the public, but Vic Dana recorded it that summer and took it all the way to number 42 in fall 1963. Since there are no public statements regarding the creation of the song More and its inclusion into the film Mondo Kane, we're left to guess that the song became popular thanks to Vic Dana, and Ortolani lobbied to have his wife, Katina Ranieri, record a version and put it into the movie version that played exclusively at the Vogue Theater in Los Angeles in April 1963 in the hope that an Oscar nomination would come of it. Remember that a song only had to play in the film version that unspooled in a Los Angeles theater. Oh, my love. 
this lush love song doesn't fit at all with the visual shown in Mondo Kane. Since I haven't been able to find the version that pasted this song into it to qualify for the Oscars, I can't tell you where it appears. The melody appears in the original film a few times, during a scene in Australia featuring female lifeguards doing practice CPR on human men, and during a series of scenes with drunk Germans. Wherever it appeared, the song was bound to not really fit. This was the first nominated song to officially come from a documentary film, and perhaps it'll make more history as the first Oscar-winning song to come from a documentary. The British-born Newell had been writing songs for the movie since the 1950s, and none of his previous songs had much of a chance at an Oscar nomination. They made next to no money in the United States or were never released in Los Angeles, thereby not qualifying for the award. He had been a producer of the early works of British singer Shirley Bassey, earning credit for kickstarting her career. Well, now that we've made it through Mondo Kane, we'll get back to scripted American-made films with the next nominated song, which gives Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer the opportunity to make history with three consecutive Best Song winners. Their nominated song in 1963 was the title song from the comedy Charade, starring Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. These were two of the most loved movie stars of the early 1960s, and having them together in one film guaranteed it would be a success. The movie made $13 million, and its soundtrack was a big success for Mancini, giving him a top 10 hit with his score. But Mercer and Mancini probably should not have received a nomination for the title song, because it's barely heard in the film. It's performed when Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn are on a river dinner cruise in Paris, talking about things that are of minor importance. Playing softly, and I do mean softly, underneath this dialogue, is a song performed by an off-screen chorus. For the first minute, I wasn't sure I was actually hearing a song. The volume of the song is turned up a little bit later, just enough for us to hear the word charade and a few other words. But it's not easy to figure out the meaning of the song based on what we can hear in the film. Here's the official commercial recording by Mancini, with a chorus performing the song just as they did for Days of Wine and Roses. The lyrics, very clearly sung here, talk about people who play games with silly names and still fall in love. It's very much the theme of the movie, and I really wish it had been given more prominence in the actual film.
I suppose it was the moderate success of the commercial release that helped the music branch see the song as a big hit and worthy of a nomination. And it didn't hurt to have the names of Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer behind it to help convince the voters that, even though the song is barely audible, instead of clearly audible, as it says in the rules, they can let the rules be bent a little bit. So that's two songs that found a loophole and got a nomination for Academy Award in 1963. I'm happy to say that the other three songs fit the eligibility rules very clearly, so we can just enjoy the performances. Like Charade, the next movie on the list was a big, 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 big hit in 1963. The movie was It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and it tried to one-up the cameo-filled movies of the war years with so many movie stars that more than half of the opening credits is taken up with listing all of their names. I counted about 70 lead, supporting, and cameo roles in this very long comedy caper, and seeing some of the faces does come as a surprise, as we're promised in the credits. But before the opening credits is the overture, which often preceded the opening credits in movies of the 1950s and 1960s. Instead of a background image on the screen while we hear the orchestra play music, we're treated to the film's title song. Written by Ernest Gold and Mac David, the song plays on many world cultures that are turned on its ear to suggest the madness that the title suggests. The Chinese don't like their own food. General Motors makes bigger cars even though the highways are congested. The song sets up the insanity that takes place in the movie when a bunch of people break the rules and toss away their morals for the chance to find $350,000 in the California desert. The song is written in 3-4 time, or waltz time, which you can feel throughout the song. It's a mad, 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 mad world. In France, the girls wear scanties, but on lamb chops, they put panties. I'm telling you, it's a mad, 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 mad world. A Japanese. 
sure of is that nothing is sure. Have a all! Live it up! Only fools give it up. To sure the younger, but to sure. So be a happy gaffer, be a screamer, be a laugher. German. Jawohl! That's right! It's a mad, 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 mad world. I know it may sound jerky, but in Turkey, who eats turkey? Yes, yes! Confess it's a mad, 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 mad world. Our traffic is so congested, mass confusion on wheels. But Detroit is a drive. What they'll do in Detroit is make bigger automobiles. So be a happy fellow. Be a town boy. Punch and mellow. Get off the shelf and enjoy yourself. It's a mad, 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 mad. It's a mad. The Shirelles sang two other original songs in the movie, both of which come in fun scenes, but are throwaway songs. But they got to make the official recording of the title song, which changed the lyrics completely to make it more of a pop standard instead of a statement on upside-down cultures. It's a mad, 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 mad world. When teenage kids look messed up they will tell you they're all dressed up. That's what they claim in this mad, 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 mad world. A girl who makes you drool that you call hot stuff. Stop. They say cool that it means the same in this mad, 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 mad world. A boy will buy brand new blue Them so till they shrink, they're not right until they're too tight. Right. Don't try to mastermind it yeah. or discover yeah. what's behind it. Yeah. Just scratch your neck and say, What the heck is a mad, 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 mad Ernest Gold also earned an Oscar nomination for writing the score for the movie. This was a 180-degree turn from his Oscar-winning score for the historical drama Exodus, and he handled the duties with lots of class, instead of turning the score into a cartoon. After his family escaped Nazi-occupied Austria in 1939, Gold became a sensation almost immediately, with two of his symphonies played on national radio and at Carnegie Hall. He moved to Hollywood in 1945 and started writing film scores for low-budget films, until Stanley Kramer picked him to write the score for his science fiction movie, On the Beach. Kramer had the good fortune of having Spencer Tracy as his go-to actor, and Ernest Gold was Kramer's go-to composer, at least for two more movies after It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. <laughs> 
As for Mac David, he wasn't beholden to any director or composer, working as a freelance lyricist and doing quite well. This was his fourth Oscar nomination in five years, and although none of the songs were blazing up the Billboard Hot 100 charts, the Oscar nominations meant he could easily get the projects he wanted. Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn were still vying to be the best songwriting duo in Hollywood, even though Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer currently sat on that perch. Their working relationship continued into the days of rock and roll, when their writing styles, lush melodies, and catchy lyrics would have to fight with the songs the Beatles, Elvis Presley, and others were writing for the teenagers who were now spending the money to buy records. Perhaps their nominated song from 1963 wasn't ever going to be a chart topper, but it's a solid contribution to the film Papa's Delicate Condition. According to his memoir, Khan never found much quality to the film, bemoaning the fact that Jackie Gleason's lead character was turned from an alcoholic father to just a deadbeat father. They should have called it Papa's Delicatessen, Khan wrote. I mentioned that Jackie Gleason was the star of the movie, but it originally was planned for Fred Astaire in the mid-1950s. Khan had longed for the opportunity to write for one of the movie's best singers and relished the chance to do so when he was asked. The first song written for this movie, which was going to be a full-blown musical, was Call Me Irresponsible. Khan was attracted to the numerous uses of irresponsible in the script and created a song from that word. He and Van Heusen played the song for Astaire, who loved it from the start. Van Heusen and Khan wrote about five more songs for the movie and were ready to rehearse and record them, until MGM demanded that Astaire do the film adaptation of the musical Silk Stocking, which he had already contractually agreed to do. That meant Papa's delicate condition wasn't going to happen, at least not then. In early 1963, Word got to Khan that Papa's Delicate Condition was going into production with Jackie Gleason, the former star of the hit TV show The Honeymooners. MGM was not going to make it a musical and had retooled the script to take away any musical lead-ins. Khan fought hard to keep two of the songs in the movie. One was Walking Happy, a song by a drunk man who may not be walking entirely in a straight line. The other was Call Me Irresponsible, and Khan suggested it go when Gleason's character has disappointed his family for the last time. The executives at MGM let the songs go into the picture, but they were in danger of being cut again after a sneak preview. Khan and Van Heusen fought even harder to keep Call Me Irresponsible in the movie. Khan believed it could win the Oscar, and it could be a big hit for anyone who recorded it for commercial release. The song stayed, and though the movie is not a musical... And though Gleason's character Jack Griffith is not a singer, we are ready for him to sing Call Me Irresponsible because the first time we see Gleason, he sings the 1902 song, Bill Bailey, Won't You Please Come Home. When it comes time to sing Call Me Irresponsible, Jack is at his lowest point, drunk and on the outs with his family because he bought a circus. He performs it as a partly sung, partly spoken plea for one more chance directed toward a mannequin in his bedroom. All right. So I'm impulsive, expulsive, repulsive, pulsive. Oh, you 
beautiful doll. You miserable soul. Call me irresponsible. Call me unreliable. Throw in undependable too. Do my foolish alibis bore you? Well, I'm not too clever. I just adore you. Call me unpredictable. Tell me I'm impractical. Rainbows I'm inclined to pursue. Call me irresponsible. Yes, I'm unreliable, but it's undeniably true. I'm irresponsibly mad for you. It's a tall order for a lyricist, forcing yourself to use the word irresponsible in a lyric and then trying to rhyme it. Khan was a genius at finding the right words to continue illustrating how much of a failure Jack seems to be with his family, but then taking the word undeniably to turn the self-pitying song into a declaration of love at the end. Of course, Frank Sinatra recorded the song, and it wasn't really much of a hit for him. By Sinatra standards, peaking at number 78 on the Billboard Hot 100 is kind of a failure. But the song isn't your typical Sinatra song, especially in the hip 1960s. Close to 10 other singers who didn't have the same popularity as Sinatra recorded their versions, and none of them made it into the Billboard Hot 100. Van Heusen's point of view toward the creation of Call Me Irresponsible is not largely documented, and when it is, the writer often defers to Khan's perspective, which says a lot about the dynamic between these two songwriters. Khan was always the lead, and Van Heusen was the silent partner. And that's the way their relationship would continue through the 1960s. The same folks who brought us El Cid in 1961 came back in 1963 with another epic about a battle to rule a nation. This time, producer Samuel Bronston takes us to China at the turn of the 20th century for the movie 55 Days at Peking. The movie focuses largely on the Boxer Rebellion, which ended in British forces overtaking Peking after fighting the Chinese army. The movie was criticized for inaccuracies, but praised for the look of the picture. Just as El Cid earned a lot of money but didn't make a profit, 55 Days at Peking was strong at the box office but could only match its $10 million budget. In the middle of the Boxer Rebellion is a small subplot involving a love affair between the characters played by Charlton Heston and Ava Gardner. Heston is Major Lewis, an American in charge of the American forces in China, and Gardner is Natalie, a Russian aristocrat who has been involved with a Chinese officer. The love affair between Heston and Gardner is short-lived, as Gardner's character dies while trying to help at a hospital. That's the basis of the nominated song that Paul Francis Webster wrote with Dimitri Tiomkin for 55 Days at Peking. It's called So Little Time, 
And like the love song they wrote for El Cid, it plays during the exit music portion of the film when the audience is putting on their coats and leaving the theater. In an attempt to sell records, the names of the songwriters and the name of the song stays on screen during the entire performance, as does the name of the man singing it. Andy Williams was becoming a regular go-to guy for movie songs, especially after he made Moon River a massive hit two years earlier. The song fits the doomed romance between Natalie and Lewis, urging the lovers to enjoy their embrace tonight, because tomorrow will come very soon. So little time to let you know how much I love you. So little time to let you know how much I care. And though I try to make believe. This love of ours will last forever It's just my heart that I deceive Because I know, oh yes I know This sad old world When we are gone We'll go on spinning These very stars, when we are gone, will shine as bright. So hold me in your arms until tomorrow. It appears that Andy Williams' voice wasn't enough to make so little time a chart-topping success. The record that was released in May 1963 never cracked the Billboard Hot 100, though Williams had a couple other songs during that time which were doing very well. None of the songs nominated for 1963 seemed to resonate very strongly with the public, and none of the ones left off the list weren't doing gangbusters either. Frank Sinatra's 1963 film, Come Blow Your Horn, was a big box office success with $12 million in ticket sales worldwide, 
but Sinatra's recording of the title song was a flop. In the film, he sings it to his much, much younger brother as they go shopping in New York City to spruce up the younger brother's image and self-esteem. Since this is a Sinatra song, of course it was written by Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn. Make like a Mr. Milk Toast and you'll get shut out. Make like a Mr. Meek and you'll get cut out. Make like a little lamb and wham, you're shorn. I tell you, son, it's time to come blow your horn. Make like a Mr. Mumbles and you're a zero. Make like a Mr. Big, they dig a hero. You've got to sound your A the day you're born. I tell you, chum, it's time to come blow your horn. The taller the tree is, the sweeter the peach. I'll give you the whole Magilla in a one-word speech. Reach. And here's the strange thing. Sinatra never released a commercial recording of the song. And if Frank Sinatra doesn't see fit to make a, any song he sings in a movie available to the public, something's wrong. So insignificant is the song that its creation is not mentioned in either biographies of Kahn or Van Heusen. The James Bond spy franchise kicked off in 1962 with Dr. No, Sean Connery's first appearance as the British spy. That movie did not have a theme song attached to it, but the next movie in the series did not make that mistake. Though From Russia With Love featured the first time that John Barry would be assigned to write the score, he had nothing to do with the song. That was assigned to Lionel Bart, who was setting London's West End Theatre District on fire with a musical adaptation of Oliver Twist. What made Bart's success with Oliver unusual was the fact that he could not read music, nor could he write out his melodies himself. Very much like Irving Berlin, Bart had someone else transcribe his melodies and put them on music sheets. That was true in 1963 when Bart was asked to write From Russia With Love. Unlike the Bond theme songs you might know, this song was not performed over the opening credits. There's an instrumental version of it as we see the credits over somewhat nude female bodies, but the song itself doesn't appear until later in the film on the radio. And somewhat weirdly, it's performed off-screen while Bond is vacationing in Venice with his latest lover, leading us into one of the first times a song is performed over actual end credits. From Russia with love I fly to you Much wiser since my Russia 
love I've seen places faces and smiles for a moment but oh you haunted me so but sadly no Oscar nomination for the first official Bond song. Over at the Walt Disney Studios, animated musicals were coming back, thanks to a songwriting duo made of brothers Richard and Robert Sherman. After missing out on a nomination for their work on The Parent Trap in 1961, they were back with six songs for the animated film The Sword in the Stone, about young Arthur and the legend of Camelot. The title song acts as a prologue for the movie, and other songs try to move the story along. But many of the songs are too short to really make a difference, except the song, That's What Makes the World Go Round. The song comes when the wizard Merlin changes himself and Arthur into fish to learn about physics. Come on, let's get a rhythm. Right, left, right, left. One, two, left and right, like day and night. That's what makes the world go round. In and out, thin and stout. That's what makes the world go round. For every up, there is a down. For every square, there is a round. Yes. For every high, there is a low. Yeah. And for every two, there is a fro. Fro. Yes, fro. To and fro, stop and go. That's what makes the world go round. As Disney songs go, nothing from Sword in the Stone resonated with audiences as quickly as Someday My Prince Will Come or When You Wish Upon a Star. But that didn't mean the Sherman brothers were hack writers. They just needed the right project to showcase their true talents. That'll be coming up very soon. Another musical that was doing well at the box office was Bye Bye Birdie. And though it was based on the 1960 Broadway musical, a new song was written specifically for the film and rising star Anne Margaret. Surprisingly, Charles Strauss and Lee Adams never wrote a title song as part of their Broadway score. And of course, Hollywood wasn't going to let that slide. So the two gave the title song to Anne Margaret, who plays a fan of the Elvis Presley-like singer who is giving one last performance before being drafted to the army.
song was part of the top 10 list of songs that followed the preliminary nomination voting by the Academy, but it was one of five title songs that were left behind when Call Me Irresponsible, Charade, Mad 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 World, More, and So Little Time were named the official Oscar nominees from 1963. For the second year in a row, there was no Golden Globe Award given for the best song of the year, and can you blame them? But whether or not 1963 was a strong year for movie songs doesn't negate the fact that one had to be chosen, and the Academy still remained happy to do so. Instead of having one person sing all the nominated songs at the Academy Awards ceremony, as Robert Goulet has done the year before, the Academy returned to presenting the songs individually again. Andy Williams was in charge of singing two of the songs, and weirdly, one of them was not So Little Time, the song he introduced in 55 Days at Peking. Williams performed Call Me Irresponsible and Charade, while actor Harv Presnell sang So Little Time. Before he became known in 1996 for Fargo, Harv Presnell played a musical theater, originating the role of Leadville Johnny in The Unsinkable Molly Brown. On Broadway. In order to capitalize on the sudden success of Mondo Kane, Katiana Ranieri came to Hollywood to sing her song More, though her performance at the ceremony on April 13, 1964, didn't do much to help her international fame. She stayed in Italy working on Federico Fellini's minor films and other low budget movies through the 1960s and 1970s. When it came time to announce the name of the songwriters who would win the Oscar, one of the songwriters was curiously absent. Sammy Kahn, going for his fourth Oscar, was feeling unlucky on April 13th, even though it wasn't a Friday. That morning, his divorce from Gloria Delson after 18 years of marriage was finalized, and the house they had shared all that time was sold. Khan didn't want to be in public if the third strike against him that day turned out to be an Oscar loss, so he asked his daughter to attend the ceremony. In his autobiography, Khan said he felt Moore had the best chance of winning since it was the bigger hit, even though he questioned its eligibility since the song was written after the movie was officially released. Khan's bad luck streak ended when Shirley Jones read that Call Me Irresponsible was the winning song. That made Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen four-time Oscar winners, right up there with Johnny Mercer, who achieved his milestone the previous year. The first time the two had won the Oscar as partners was six years earlier, and even though Frank Sinatra wasn't responsible for the win, he had to be overjoyed that his in-house songwriters could win Oscars without his help. Kahn's daughter, Laura, told the audience, For my father, Mr. Kahn, I thank you. Not to be outdone, Van Heusen thanked his father, too. Back home, Khan was inundated with congratulatory messages that surely helped him recover from that day's earlier traumas. So that's what we got for 1963. In the end, none of the songs found much life beyond that year. But just you wait until 1964, when the world's biggest entertainers make a play for movie stardom and Walt Disney ups the ante. It's going to be a memorable episode, I'm sure, talking about the best song nominees of 1964, and I'm looking forward to having you join me for that. In the meantime, feel free to send me a question or comment about the show to my email 
at jeffswim at aol.com. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode. We'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law. 